One of the significant catalysts in the Protestant Reformation was a book by John Huss that set forth with profound clarity that Christ is the only head of his church. But the Catholic Church continues to teach today what it taught in Huss's day, that the Pope, and not Christ, is the head of the church. How we as Christians should think of the Pope and Catholicism. That's today on this edition of The Truth Forum with David Parsons. Our guest today is Phil Johnson. Phil's the executive director of the Grace To You Media Ministry and primary editor of books by John MacArthur. Now let's join Truth Remains founder David Parsons along with our guest, Phil Johnson. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Truth Forum. I'm Dave Parsons, and I'm excited because we've got a helpful and somewhat controversial topic lined up for you today. So let's get right to it. We're talking about the Pope and Catholicism, and my friend Phil Johnson has graciously joined us as my guest. Phil, I consider it a real honor to have you on the program after benefiting from your ministry and insight for many years. You are a stalwart defender of the scripture and a guardian for Christ Church. Thank you for serving us all so faithfully, and thank you for being with us. Thanks, Dave. It's a, it's a privilege to be with you. Thanks for having me, and uh, it's good to be with you. I appreciate your role in grace to you as well. You've been a board member for many years, and uh, we've been partners in ministry and more than that, friends for several years, and it's just a, a joy and a privilege to be with you today. In 2017, we'll celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And for those listening who may not know, the word Protestant actually is derived from those who quite literally protested Catholic doctrine and ultimately broke away from that establishment to preach the sole authority of Scripture, justification by faith alone through grace alone, and Christ as head of His church and not the Pope. Fast forward 500 years to the current Pope's recent visit to the United States. From the reaction of the people and the media, you might think the Lord himself had come. I'm interested in what your thoughts are as to why this Pope seems to be so popular, even among mainstream evangelicals. Yeah, first let me say a word about the term Protestant because it has a negative sound, I think is unnecessarily negative. Uh, We think of a protest as a negative thing, but it actually comes from two Latin words, pro, which means in favor of, and test, which is part of the word from which we get the English word testify or give testimony. And it refers to a document that was drafted by some German princes who were sympathetic with Martin Luther, and they were responding to Catholic efforts to marginalize and minimize and silence uh, the voice of evangelical theology. And uh, so they wrote up this document called a protestation, and, and it's from that document, which I think was brought to the second Diet of Spire in 1529. So it dates back to about 1529. And so the term Protestant originally uh, referred to that. And it was indeed a protest against strong arm Roman Catholic tactics trying to silence Martin Luther. And you're right, 500 years later, the Protestant movement has totally changed flavor. And you see that most graphically with the Pope's recent visit to the United States. I was frankly surprised that so many, uh, you call them mainstream evangelicals, uh, 
The sad thing is the mainstream of the movement that's typically labeled evangelical really isn't very evangelical anymore at all. Evangelical is a word that refers to the gospel, the evangel, the good news. And an evangelical would be someone who is who is uh, whose theological perspective and primary concerns center around the gospel message. And uh, sadly, I don't think that's the case for the majority of people who would self-identify as evangelicals today. They're just not very evangelical. And uh, as a as a result, the evangelical movement as a movement has moved further and further in the same direction medieval Roman Catholicism did. So obviously, a lot of evangelical leaders, contemporary people who would identify themselves as evangelicals, really do have more in common with Catholicism and Roman Catholic history than they do with traditional historic Protestantism. And, uh, you know, I don't really, I can't explain why this pope is so popular other than the fact that he is the first sort of quintessentially postmodern pope. He, uh, he's concerned about things like climate change and, you know, the redistribution of wealth. He, he's outspokenly opposed to capitalism. And uh, oh, I find all of that very curious. I mean, given the fact that uh, he, he himself, you know, lives in a palace in, in the midst of a bunch of wealth. Uh, uh, but nevertheless, the, the issues that he talks about are the popular issues. And frankly, that rings a bell with a lot of evangelicals whose chief concern is, you know, how can the church be appealing to the world? How can we how can we be more likable? How can we be more popular? How can we get on board with whatever is currently fashionable or whatever people are talking about? That's why, you know, Protestant pastors get in their pulpits and preach about whatever the latest movie was rather than you know, doing biblical exposition, because Protestants as a movement have become more and more concerned about staying in step with the culture, staying in step with where society's at. And that's reflected in this Pope's set of priorities. And so they like him. And it's frankly surprising because, you know, he, he, on the political spectrum, I would say he's, he's far more liberal than the typical evangelical would be. And in fact, I thought one of the telling facts about his visit to America was how little he had to say when he spoke before Congress and other places, how little he had to say about the issue of abortion. He seemed deliberately to choose those political issues that sort of resonate with, uh, you know, young college students. And and, uh, it seemed to me that the whole thing was basically a a well-orchestrated public relations campaign to portray this pope as hip and stylish. And of course, that's what evangelicals currently love. So that's the best explanation I can come up with regarding why he seems so popular with contemporary evangelicals. Because frankly, if you look at evangelical theology, the gospel, the doctrine, as you mentioned, the justification by faith, the authority of scripture, those issues that have always distinguished Protestants from Roman Catholics, he's badly out of step with evangelical issues. So the fact that he would seem so appealing to young evangelicals actually suggests that they're out of tune with their own heritage. But it amazes me that evangelicals continue to fight these battles considering the influence of Catholic teaching is something that the true church has been fighting since the days of John Huss in the 1400s. Rome's theology has evolved and her arguments have been modified, but the issues remain what they were in Luther's day. The sufficiency, clarity, and authority of Scripture 
are at the forefront just as they were then. And in that sense, uh, the Reformation isn't over, is it? No, it's not. And I, and I would add to those issues the doctrine of justification by faith, which really is the material principle of the Protestant Reformation. The authority of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, is known as the formal principle. So you've got those two principles, really, that distinguish Protestant doctrine from Roman Catholic teaching, the formal principle being the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, or the principle we know as sola scriptura, and the uh, material principle being the doctrine of justification by faith alone, the principle of we are justified by faith, that faith alone is the instrument of our justification, not baptism, not any ritual or whatever. That, of course, is the principle known as sola fide. So sola fide, sola scriptura, those are the two sort of pillars on which uh, Protestant theology stands and the things that make us distinct from Roman Catholicism. And those issues, on those issues, the Catholic Church is no closer to Protestantism than it ever was. So you know, my answer would be, no, at least the reasons for the Protestant Reformation aren't over, but the Reformation itself seems to have lost steam in our generation. I did a breakout session, I think, at the Shepherds Conference a few years ago dealing with this very question. The The issue they assigned me was, is the Protestant Reformation over? And I read from some leading uh, evangelical, you know, minds who were saying, yes, it is. There's no reason for the Reformation anymore. And and all of that. And, uh, you know, my conclusion is that uh, the Protestant Reformation isn't over, but it's definitely gone into the shadows and underground. And it's being pursued by a remnant of faithful people who still are concerned about the authority and sufficiency of Scripture and the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But the, the mainstream and the majority, I think, of people in the evangelical movement have, have really forgotten those issues. We've got two or three generations now, successive generations, that have been poorly taught or even untaught when it comes to doctrine and scripture. And so there really isn't a large movement of knowledgeable Protestants anymore who are, you know, well-versed in scripture and and uh, well-taught in doctrine and theology. And for that reason, the Protestant Reformation has lost significant steam. I've said often that if you look at the evangelical movement today as a movement, the broad movement that's represented by Christianity Today magazine and and its subscribers and contributors and, uh, and the majority of those people, if that were the gauge of the health of the visible church and then the protestant realm today you'd have to conclude that protestantism is in at least as bad a condition perhaps even worse off than roman catholicism was in the medieval era just prior to the dawn of the protestant reformation it's a sad state that the church is in today we need another reformation I concur fully with you on that, Phil. In fact, our hearts are completely knit together on that point. Now, Charles Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, said, quote, Christ did not redeem his church with his blood so the Pope could come in and steal away the glory, end quote. He goes on to say that Christ, quote, never came from heaven to earth and poured out his very heart that he might purchase his people so that a poor sinner, a mere man, should be set upon high to be admired by all the nations and to call himself God's representative on earth, exclamation point, 
Christ has always been the head of the church, end quote. Now, that was in 1858. I know that you are a venerable Spurgeon scholar. Can we gather that even his congregation needed help discerning the heresy of the Pope's authority? Perhaps. I'd have to say that it would have probably have been hard to find anyone in England in the middle of the 19th century who was as woefully ignorant of church history and doctrine as the typical evangelical today is. So I don't think Spurgeon was necessarily hammering these issues because he felt his people were totally untaught. He was just trying to emphasize what it seemed the spirit of the age was trying to obscure. Spurgeon had a uh, you know a great ability to look ahead and see where the church was going and you know if you read about his struggles in the downgrade controversy towards the end of his life he was arguing against a sort of modernistic approach to scripture that undermined the authority of scripture and and tried to erase differences between protestants and roman catholicism and spurgeon saw disaster looming ahead and so i think that motivated him to be even more outspoken i have to say this though that spurgeon said a lot of things like you just quoted critiquing the Pope. And as far as I know, there was never any widespread controversy over that. I think at the time, that was the mood in England. England was, after the Protestant Reformation, England was, as a culture, generally pretty wary of Roman Catholic uh, influences and, and all of that. Now, they they had in the beginning, the first half of the 19th century, of course, the Oxford movement, which was a move of several leading Protestants back towards Roman Catholic directions and people like Cardinal Newman even left the Anglican Church in order to become a Roman Catholic Cardinal. Uh, So there was a drift, I think, from people leaving Protestantism and going back to Roman Catholicism, but that was owing to a high church Anglicanism, more or less. And when Spurgeon uh, spoke about problems in the Anglican Church, that always unleashed controversy. His his first great controversy was about baptismal regeneration, which of course is a Roman Catholic doctrine, uh, but it was being taught in the Anglican Church. So he could criticize Catholicism with relative impunity, but if he turned his guns on Catholic influences in the Anglican Church, it always stirred controversy. And Spurgeon saw that the drift towards Anglo-Catholicism and high church Anglicanism and all of that in the Anglican church in his era was actually pushing the culture to be more and more open to Roman Catholic influences. And he predicted pretty much what has happened uh, with Protestants as a whole pretty much dropping their guard against Roman Catholic influences. We've reached a point now where both in England and America, if you took a poll from the average Protestant in the pew and asked him to give an account for why he's Protestant rather than Roman Catholic and what are the differences, the typical person wouldn't be able to give you a coherent answer. But I have to say, I don't think think the situation was as dire in 1858 when Spurgeon was, was saying those things as it is today. I don't think he was doing that just because the people in his in his church were untaught he was doing it uh, simply because he could see the the pressure of the society and the culture being more and more towards a kind of ecumenical tolerance and loose theology and he fought against that for his entire ministry think about this 1858 if that's the year of the quotation you gave me 
That was only three years after Spurgeon came to London. He was still a young man in his 20s when he said that. And when he died in the 1890s, he was still fighting those same trends, and things had gotten worse, not better, despite Spurgeon's own influence and popularity. So the battle he was waging there is an uphill battle, and even more so for us. Boy, that's really helpful. Now, here's a question, and I'm really looking forward to hearing how you're going to answer this. If one of the Pope's scheduled visits to the U.S. included a trip to the offices of Grace to You, and you had a few moments to speak with him, what would you say? That's a hard question, because I can't imagine it happening. If if he indicated his desire to come and visit us at Grace to You, I I would certainly say to him, fine, come, I'd be happy to talk to you, but no press. We're not going to make this a part of your PR strategy or whatever, but I'd love to talk to him privately. And I would ask him things like, how does your conscience manage to deal with, say, Matthew 23? When you read Jesus diatribes against the Pharisees' religion, and the very things he condemned the Pharisees for are pretty much the the hallmarks of you know, Roman Catholic religion, at least in public, where Jesus says to the Pharisees, let me look it up here, Matthew 23, verse 5, this is really the heart of his criticism against them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. He's talking about the garments they wore, that they, they, they dressed themselves in elaborate, gaudy clothing that was supposed to somehow signify their holiness and, uh, and you know, uh, and give them the sort of an artificial air of piety through their clothing. Roman Catholicism has done that for centuries, and and it's gotten worse. And this pope is no different from his predecessors when it comes to that, even though he tries to say things that make it sound like he has great sympathy with the poor of the world, and he's constantly uh, condemning capitalism and private wealth and all of that. And yet, All of the pomp and grandeur that he travels around with, how does he reconcile that with his conscience? How does he manage to live with the hypocrisy of criticizing capitalists for accumulating wealth when he lives in the Vatican palaces, which are reputed to have 11,000 rooms in his palace? And I've been through the Vatican museums. There's enough wealth in the Vatican museums to feed pretty much any poor country in the world. How does he deal with that? How does he manage that in his conscience? The Roman Catholic Church has wrapped itself in the most obscene kind of wealth, and he parades that around the world and comes to America and and accepts the worship of people, actually. There are people kissing his ring, and he claims to be the vicar of Christ and and all of that. I, I, I just don't see any way uh, how someone could who takes the Scriptures seriously— could live like that and not see the conflict. Uh, And I'd like to ask him about that and at least see what his thoughts are on it. Um, the, The bottom line is, I don't think he does take the scriptures seriously. I think that's a problem that's inherent in Roman Catholic doctrine. They obviously have to give lip service to the scriptures, but it's very much a mirror of the problems Jesus faced with the Pharisees. Here were the Pharisees who professed to be the ones and really were the ones of the of the three major Jewish sects, the Pharisees were the ones who probably had the highest view of Scripture, and they they 
They took it literally, sometimes even to a fault, and yet they could read Scripture and simply disobey it without any apparent compunction or pangs of conscience. And it seems to me the Roman Catholic Church pretty much does the same thing on a routine basis. You could take Matthew 23 again and read that entire passage and analyze what Jesus' criticisms were against Phariseeism. And as I see it, virtually every one of them, if not literally every one of them, applies to the Roman Catholic Church. And that's what I would challenge the Pope with. I don't think I'd want to get into an argument with him about the gospel because uh, that that's such a basic and sort of well-worn ground that I, I know Roman Catholic apologists have their sort of canned answers to, you know, pretty much every point we as Protestants might make. But just back away, look at the big picture. And I would say to the Pope, look how you're living and listen to what you're saying about concern for poor people and compare that to how you live and the opulence within which you live and explain to me how your conscience can live with that. That's what I would say to him. Wow, I'd love to be a fly on that wall. This pope in particular has shocked Catholics and evangelicals alike with his views on homosexuality and abortion and other things. Still, most embrace him. And there's a tendency to think of Catholicism as harmless or perhaps another form of Christianity. Phil, help our listeners as they have conversations with Catholics and with those who support Catholicism, because this is a real struggle for many. Talk about the origin and error of that doctrine and how we can help Catholics out of the darkness and into the light. Well, I, I do think the, the fundamental issue that it always comes down to between true Protestants, Protestants who have a biblical perspective and, and recognize and bow to the, the authority of Scripture and the doctrine that's taught in Scripture, it always comes down to the gospel, the gospel message. How are our sins dealt with? Do Hail Marys and, and personal acts of penance actually atone for our sin, or was the atoning work of Christ truly sufficient for forgiveness? Do we have to be baptized and go through all of the sacraments in order to be justified? And, and can we not even know that our justification is, is real and complete until you know, we make it through the other side of purgatory? Or is it true what Scripture says, that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus? Can we be confident of that? Can we know for sure that we are saved? Those are significant differences, so huge that, in fact, what Roman Catholicism teaches compared to what historic Protestantism has always stood on, they amount to two different Gospels. And it is the same issue, it is exactly the same issue that the Apostle Paul was dealing with in his epistle to the Galatians. And he says in the very opening chapter of that book that this is such an important issue, he says, so that even if I or an angel comes to you and gives you a different message from the one you've already heard, he's talking to the Galatians and saying, the, the message you've already heard is the gospel as I gave it to you, the gospel you responded to, faith alone in Christ alone for salvation. If someone comes, even if it's me, Paul says, with a different message, let that person be accursed. And he's using language there that is, it's the strongest language Paul uses anywhere, and it is the strongest language in the New Testament to condemn 
an error of, of any type. And, and when someone messes up the gospel, it's a fatal kind of heresy. It's a, it's a fatal departure from the truth. And that's, that's just the nature of the difference between, and Protestants and Catholics alike have historically recognized that, that we can't both be right, and whoever is wrong is fatally wrong, is eternally wrong. The consequences of it are eternally fatal. And so it's an important issue, and it has to be correctly understood, the gospel, or your faith is going to be in the wrong place. That's, that's the problem. And it's what Paul was dealing with in Galatians. The Galatian heretics were suggesting that faith in Christ is fine and all of that, but you also need to be circumcised because that was the Old Testament mark of the covenant with God. And if you're not circumcised, you're outside the covenant. And so they were teaching these Gentiles who had come to faith in Christ that now they also needed to be circumcised. And if they weren't, they couldn't be truly saved. And so they're adding a condition to faith as an additional requirement for salvation. And Paul says, once you do that, you make the gospel a matter of human works. And that's precisely what Roman Catholicism does with its series of uh, sacraments and the requirements for penance and, and, you know, even the very idea of purgatory. The Catholic doctrine errs because it fails to see justification as a, a completed act. They see it as a process. They kind of mingle and mix justification and sanctification and reason that you're not really fit to heaven until you're perfect and since nobody's perfect when they die they had to invent a doctrine like say purgatory you know so that when you die you go to purgatory for the remainder of your sins to be dealt with and atoned for and even though scripture says absolutely nothing whatsoever about purgatory or any idea that even hints at it uh, that's become a very important Roman Catholic doctrine because it's the only way they can explain their view of justification as a process that gradually perfects you until you're finally suited for heaven. Scripture says, no, that we're justified by grace through faith, that, again, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that being justified by faith past tense, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans 5, 1. And so scripture everywhere presents justification as a completed, it's a declaration that God makes about us, actually. And it's completed at the moment of faith. Faith is sufficient as the instrument of our justification. So we stand just before God. It's true that we're not perfect yet. In fact, Protestants uh, had a Latin phrase that described this. We are we are, they said, justified and yet still sinful. Simul justus et peccator, at the same time justified and yet sinful. But the process by which we are purged of practical sin is sanctification. Our eternal life doesn't hinge on our sanctification. It hinges on the atoning work of Christ, and that's a completed act. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was signifying that Atonement was complete. Everything we need for a right standing before God is provided for us by Christ. And that's precisely what the Roman Catholic Church denies. In fact, if you read the canons and decrees of the Council of Trent, they actually pronounce an anathema on anyone who dares to have assurance that they are saved. 
they rule out the whole idea of assurance and they rule out the notion that justification can be completed by faith in a moment and portray justification as a lifelong process. So they confuse justification and confound justification and, and sanctification, blend those two together, and that ends up destroying the gospel. It takes away the, the perfect freeness of God's grace, and it takes away the possibility of assurance. And it puts not only some of the work, but some of the credit for our salvation on the sinner himself rather than on Christ alone. And therefore, it robs Christ of glory. And that, again, is a complaint, I think, that I would have over pretty much every area where Roman Catholicism deviates from Protestantism. The the, all the priestly vestments and, and ceremonies and pomp and grandeur that you see in the Roman Catholic Church, the thing it all has in common is that it tends to rob Christ of glory. Mary worship robs Christ of glory. And that would be my central complaint with Roman Catholic theology. It robs Christ of glory. And I don't think there's any other way to look at it honestly and say, that's not true. It does rob Christ of glory, and it gives uh, gives undeserved glory to the sinner, to Mary, to the popes and priests, and pretty much spreads the glory around where it doesn't belong, because the glory belongs to Christ alone. And that, that is what the Protestants meant when they said, soli deo gloria, to God alone the glory goes. If you've been encouraged by the ministry of David Parsons and Truth Remains, please share this podcast with a friend. And if you'd like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by mailing a tax-deductible donation to Truth Remains at P.O. Box 33187, Granada Hills, California, 91394. You can also make your gift by calling toll-free at one 888 truth or donate online at truthremains.org. I'm your host, Jim Tuck, and for David Parsons and the entire Truth Remains team, thank you for joining us today. And remember that men and philosophies come and go, but truth remains.